Good afternoon and welcome to the All Souls Forum. Today's presentation is entitled The Dysfunction with No Speaker of the House with Professor Carl Brooks. It was recorded November 26, 2023 via Zoom at the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Good morning and welcome to the Forum at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church. My name is Spencer Graves. I am a member of the Forum Committee. This forum is a platform for the discussion of significant issues, especially those which involve ethical values in the contemporary world. It has been doing this since 1943. Descriptions of nearly all these forums since 2012 are searchable at kkfi.org and podcasts are available for most of them. We asked the speaker to present for about 35 minutes. This is followed by Q&A for about 20 minutes to an hour. Today, Carl Brooks will discuss the history of major dysfunctions in the U.S. House of Representatives. Brooks is a professor of the practice at the School of Public Affairs and Administration at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. He holds a Master of Science from the London School of Economics, a JD from the Harvard Law School. He practiced law in Boise, Idaho, and served uh, three terms in the Idaho State Senate. Then he came to KU for a PhD in history, and he taught uh, environmental history and law at KU for a decade before being appointed to administrator positions in the Environmental Protection Agency. He also held other administrator positions in our nation's court systems before returning to the University of Kansas faculty. He reached out to KKFI a couple of months ago, concerned about the historical precedence of leadership struggles with no speaker in the U.S. House. Fred LeBeau and I interviewed him for Radioactive Magazine on October 31. So far this year, the U.S. House has had its two most contentious processes for selecting speaker since 1859 and 1860. In, in, in 1855 and 1859, a year later, in 1861, February 1, Texas became the seventh state to secede from the Union. Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee did not secede until after the Confederates attacked Foreign Sumter, and President Lincoln called for 75,000 militia to suppress the rebellion. Carl? Spencer, good morning. Thank you so much for welcoming me. Thanks also to the good folks at All Souls for offering this forum over the last 80-some years. It's an honor and a privilege to be part of this ongoing conversation. Uh, since I can't see the audience, I will thank all of you for trekking through the snow this morning to All Souls. I want to also thank the good folks at All Souls for permitting me to remain here in Lawrence, where we have about six inches of snow on the ground and the roads are really slick. Looking forward to sharing a little bit of both personal experience and some historical research. 
into these interlocking problems of political dysfunction and institutional tension and collapse in the House of Representatives. I'll suggest a couple of ideas about what this might mean and a couple of markers to watch for going forward. Um, I very much look forward to the question and answer phase at the end of this. Um, so let me start a little bit with why I'm interested in what happens in the Congress. Um, obviously, as an American voter, I care about that. But I have had a fair bit of experience working in and around the United States Congress, and I'm going to bring that to bear on this conversation. Um, as a college student from Idaho, I went to work for the United States Senator at that time from Idaho, Frank Church, a Democrat who represented the state from 1957 until 1981. I was a pretty junior staff member of the senators, but I did get to watch both him and other congressional uh, staff in action as they put together a series of really complex investigations and hearings in 1975-76 into the operations of the United States intelligence agencies. Um, that stood as a model to me of bipartisanship, of focus on getting facts, of focus on making recommendations to the full Senate and ultimately to the full Congress. I was struck at the time as a very young person by how various senators set aside their political, partisan, and ideological preferences to roll up their sleeves, task their very competent staffs to dig into the problem of intelligence agency activities and formulate a series of recommendations that were, in the end, thoughtful enough and comprehensive enough and fair-minded enough to earn the support of the Senate the House, and signature by then-President Ford. That was the way Congress often worked on complex matters in those days, in the 1970s and 1980s. These were very partisan times. Uh, Frank Church was a, a leading liberal who had contested the Vietnam War against a president of his own party, Lyndon Johnson. Also on that committee with him were Barry Goldwater, a former presidential candidate, Howard Baker, who himself would be a presidential candidate. So these were not quiet, retiring senators. These were politically very prominent senators. The staff took their cues from the members, and the members were conscientious, hardworking, and uh, focused on the mission that they had to find the facts and make recommendations. I next encountered Congress at work uh, during those years when I was in the Idaho legislature. Like every state, Idaho really worked closely with a variety of federal agencies, Idaho being a western state, small population, lots of public lands, uh, very strong agricultural economy. The state legislature had to work closely with Congress on matters involving national forests, Bureau of Land Management, grazing lands, wilderness areas, water conservation, and I was able to see that members of Congress from that part of the country in the Great Basin and Pacific Northwest would spend a lot of time learning facts, sending staff members out to do careful investigations into problems, uh, having very candid, sleeves-rolled-up conversations in conference rooms about how best to balance water use and water conservation, logging and mining with forest conservation. And for the most part, even though there were strong politics involved, 
the members of the Congress took very seriously their activities and the staff they employed to support committees and to support senators and representatives really were experts in what they were working on. There weren't very many ideological, I might say, propagandists or bomb throwers on those staffs in those days. Um, things began to change in the middle 1990s. Um, you may recall that in 1994, Republicans took a majority in the Congress and selected Newt Gingrich as their speaker. Uh, most people are familiar that uh, Newt Gingrich was a strong partisan advocate. He had specialized in the politics, you might say, of division and an effort to portray anybody who was not a conservative Republican as somehow un-American or even traitorous to the principles of the Republicans. Still, for all of that, in the middle 1990s, after I had left the Idaho Senate, I was uh, leading an environmental group in Idaho, the largest citizen environmental group. We participated by testifying at several different congressional hearings out in Idaho about forest management. At this time, environmental politics were really divisive, very strong-willed people involved on all sides. And yet, when I testified for our group in front of a Senate field hearing in Boise in 1995, the majority leader of the United States Senate, Tom Daschle from South Dakota, sat at the dais with one of Idaho's senators, an extremely conservative Republican named Larry Craig, and they worked together, listening to a variety of witnesses, trying to formulate good ideas for improving the management of national forests. It was already becoming clear that long-term drought in the forests of the Northwest was posing serious management problems. And although my group and I disagreed quite seriously with some of the ideas that Republican senators such as Larry Craig were proposing, the conversation was a conversation about how to do forest management right, what ideas deserve serious consideration, how best to make a case to the Senate or to the House about proposals for reform. That was the way things looked as recently as the middle 1990s. Now, fast forward to the decade of the teens. As Spencer mentioned in the introduction, I was appointed by President Obama to be the senior EPA administrator for our part of the country, the Heartland region. We're based in Kansas City. It's called Region 7. It includes the states of Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas, as well as nine tribal nations within the boundaries of those states. At that time, I noticed that there had been almost a, I'd call it a sea change or a geological change in the way that Congress and especially members of Congress were working on complex, controversial topics like environmental policy. The seasoned, experienced senior staff members I had recalled from 20-some years earlier had been replaced in many cases by much younger, much less experienced staff members who had earned their appointment to senatorial and congressional staffs or committee staffs by being partisan activists, by being what you might call sword carriers in the partisan war going on both within the Republican Party and between Republicans and Democrats. Those years from 2010 to 2015, when I was leading EPA efforts in the heartland, uh, put me in some pretty contentious meetings with members of Congress from both the Senate and the House. 
Many of those meetings were constructive disagreements, but often there was a very strong partisan edge to the kinds of questions and the kinds of challenges that EPA was getting from members of Congress. And there was a tendency on the part of congressional committees to convene hearings, not so much to gather facts or consider options for environmental policy and environmental quality, but to put EPA under the spotlight and to unearth random instances of, for example, employee misbehavior and argue that the entire agency had become corrupted or that the entire environmental protection enterprise was flawed from the start because a handful of employees hadn't managed money well or hadn't managed their personal time well. It was an attitude of gotcha politics. I remember working with the two administrators of EPA. These are cabinet officials who were members of President Obama's cabinet, Lisa Jackson for the first four years, Gina McCarthy for the second four years. Both of them considered trips to Capitol Hill to be both very important for the agency, but also like going in front of a hearing in which their good faith and their employees' good faith was going to be challenged right from the start. Um, They were extremely aware that the attitude was sort of a gotcha attitude in the Congress. As a result, there was almost no constructive new environmental legislation enacted during the entire eight years of the Obama presidency. Instead, particularly the House, but also the Senate, engaged in efforts to try to tear down EPA's legitimacy and the qualities and caliber of the people working for EPA. So I think that there were several things at work there. A number of those have culminated in the last few months as we've watched the House of Representatives struggle over its leadership. A couple of the things that were happening were that there were big changes going on in the way American political parties worked. And there were also big changes going on in the way that Congress did its job. Let me first focus on some of the changes that were happening in the Congress that I think led to the conflict over Speaker Kevin McCarthy's time in office, his original election by the Republicans, which took 15 ballots back in January, led to his ouster, you might almost say a coup within the Republican Party last month, and the selection of a largely unknown extremely conservative Republican Mike Johnson as the new leader of the House of Representatives and the person who is third in line to the presidency after the vice president. Here's what's going on, I think, in the Congress. First off, there is very little discipline that leaders of the majority party, in this case the Republicans, can exert on their members of the House. Formerly, a speaker had the power to manage committee appointments and committee work in a way that produced a sense of cohesion and almost a team approach to doing legislative work. As a result, partly of the flows of unregulated money into American politics, members of Congress in the House no longer feel very much sense of team responsibility or team loyalty to the speaker. Committee chairs may be loyal to the speaker, but the committee chair's ability to say to their members, 
here's what we're doing as a party, here's what the speaker and us have decided, that ability to enforce order and discipline is eroding and in some cases, I think, has almost collapsed, especially within the Republican Party. Much of that has to do with the role of money and the rise of social media and the constant campaigning that members do to boost their social media profile. A second factor that is affecting what's going on in the House of Representatives, especially, is the erosion and, in many cases, the disappearance of loyalty on the part of individual members of the Congress to the institution itself, to the House of Representatives as the preeminent lawmaking part of the Congress, and to any committee that they happen to belong to. There's more a sense of members being out for themselves, of being involved in their own campaigns, their own effort to define their party's agenda, their own effort to hold agencies accountable. And so the sense that we speak for the House, we are privileged to hold a position in the People's House, has eroded substantially over the last 10 to 15 years. I only have to mention a handful of names, and I think you'll get my point. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Getz, Clay Higgins, other members like this who are famous, almost in a sense for being famous, as they used to talk about celebrities in the 1950s, someone famous just for being famous. This attitude of almost contempt for the prerogatives and the majesty of the House of Representatives led to the ouster of the Speaker of the House for the first time in the House's history earlier this fall. Something else that I think has contributed to this inability of the majority party to manage the work of the House is the withering of responsibility of the individual individual committees that do the work of legislation, oversight, and ultimately appropriation. Formerly in the House, the committee structure was the way that an individual member used his or her power and time in the House, working through the committee to develop legislation, working through a committee to conduct oversight and investigation either of executive agencies or particular policies or of a topic that was really important to a certain industry or feature of our country, the committees now have become almost irrelevant, especially when it comes to putting together the annual bills that appropriate the funds to keep our government running. I saw the effect of this withering away and almost collapse of individual committees' responsibility up close when I was the EPA regional administrator in Kansas City. Twice in 2012 and 2013, the conflict between the Republicans in the House and President Obama and the Democrats in the Congress over the size and shape of the federal budget led Republicans to literally shut down the federal government. I had the really sad duty as the senior EPA administrator in this part of the country to participate in informing our employees, about 500 employees and possibly as many as 1,000 contractors doing work for EPA, that they would not be paid as of a certain date and that they would have to go home 
and stop their work on behalf of the American people, protecting environmental health and environmental quality. And that was a really distressing experience. It was for me, but it was more distressing, perhaps, for my career colleagues. Most of them had worked on behalf of their neighbors, all 14 million of us who live in this part of the country, for decades at EPA. And to be told to go home, turn off their computers, stay away from their work phones was brutal to them. And I think that the impacts on our country of widespread shutdowns during those years is hard to gauge. I think it's contributed in some measure to the belief on the part of the party that's now in majority control of the House that they can shut the government down to make a political point. Um, we dodged that bullet here just a couple of weeks ago when the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, put together a plan to continue funding the federal government only with the support of Democrats, the other party, because up to 90 members of his party deserted the mission of supporting the federal government and were willing to see the government close down again. That's a symptom to me of some really serious issues going on inside American politics, and I'll turn to those in just a minute. Um, but I want to leave, before I leave this question about what's happening within the Congress, and especially what's happening within the House, I want to make a point about the role of congressional staff. As I said earlier, some 40 to 50 years ago, the staff who worked for members of Congress were talented, disciplined, public-spirited experts in their field. They were proud of their work. They were proud to be representing a senator or a member of the House of Representatives. They took their duties very seriously, and they had earned those duties. Many of them had been working their way forward to become staff members for a decade or more. As a young pup of about 19 or 20, when I worked for Idaho Senator Church, I was working with staff members who were older than the senator. These were people who had dedicated their lives to public service. When I was in Washington, though, for two years in 2015 and 16, toward the end of the Obama administration, I was EPA's national operations manager at headquarters. I was struck by how young members of the congressional staffs were. I know I'm obviously older now and everybody looks younger, but we were in hearings and working on oversight and legislation with staff members who had been in college only two or three years before. They had learned their politics in the college Republicans or in some of the larger Republican national youth groups, and that was where they learned how to do congressional staff work, it was on the front lines of fierce ideological conflict. And it leads to a different kind of Congress and a different style of legislating. Secondly, the rise of social media. It was pretty common leading up to hearings involving EPA for members to use their various social media platforms to preview what they intended to do to leaders of EPA when they came to testify. And then almost as soon as the hearings were over, to pick out snippets of film from the conversation within the committee to show that their member was going right after EPA and making the EPA staff look like we didn't know what we were doing or that we had something to hide or that we were embarrassed about our performance. 
None of this led to constructive, positive working relationships between one branch of government in the Congress and another branch of government in the executive branch. It led to a loss of trust and confidence and a real erosion of respect between the Congress and at least the agency for which I work, the Environmental Protection Agency. So that's a little bit of a look at what's going on with the Congress as an institution. Now let me steer a little bit to what is going on with political parties, and especially the Republican Party. Um, Here is where I'm going to draw a little bit on my training as a historian. Um, I taught history for about a decade at the University of Kansas before President Obama appointed me to be the EPA administrator in this part of the country and then (laughs) brought me back to D.C. So I'm an American historian trained here at the University of Kansas. My specialty is in history of law and history of environmental policy and law, which is you know, really kind of put me up against American politics over the last 60, 70 years as I do my historical research and writing. Um, I think it was Mark Twain, famous Missourian, who once said, history doesn't repeat, but it sure rhymes. I don't believe that some of the instances that I'm going to describe in the 15 or so years leading up to the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861 guarantee at all that we are headed into a similar period of division and uh, intense conflict and ultimately some sort of clash or separation. That's not what I'm saying. Historians don't do predictions and guarantees. What we do, though, is look at the past for clues as to how Americans behave, how American institutions function, and the kinds of disagreements that have the potential to become fuel kindling, and a match. And some of the things that we saw during those 15 years leading up to 1861, they were fuel, kindling, and a match. I mean, those of us who live here in the Kansas City area, both on the Kansas side and the Missouri side, very familiar with how chaotic those 15 years were between 1845-46 and 1861. Leading Kansas got its name for a good reason. Uh, So, Here's here's what things looked like in the 1850s. There's been a lot of attention recently by historians to studying the problem of violence in the Congress in the 1840s and 1850s. About 35, 40 years ago, it wasn't uncommon for historians to kind of chuckle at stories of fistfights on the floor of the House, of people waving canes or actually pulling knives and pointing knives at members in the cloakrooms or in the boarding houses of Washington where they lived, it sort of seemed to be, oh, that's just America in the 1840s or 50s. It was a violent time, and men, all the politicians were men, had to prove their manhood by challenging each other. Historians have now taken a closer look at the issue of violence and the move from rhetorical violence, people saying really sharp things about another party or about an issue to actual physical conflict and confrontation and physical violence. A historian at Yale University, uh, my my undergraduate alma mater, published a book a year or two ago called Fields of Blood. I urge most any of you interested in this to read it. Her name is Joanne Freeman. What Freeman found is that by the middle 1850s, both major parties, 
at that time it was the Democrats and the Whigs, came into each new Congress in the winter. Congress used to convene in the winter, ready to fight. Each party designated certain of their members as fighting men who would be on the lookout for disagreements that would potentially turn into pushing and shoving and fist fights. And like hockey enforcers in a hockey game, they would rush in and try to get into the middle of the fight. So it's no surprise that there were a number of instances in the 1850s, especially in the House, but also in the United States Senate, where words turned into fists. And fists led to knives and clubs being brought out, and fights actually happened in the Congress. Freeman's conclusion really kind of matches up with what a lot of historians have concluded over the last 50 years of studying the Civil War, and that is the problem of slavery, the, you might say our original sin, was so serious a problem and such a threat to the way that America operated, the way American political systems operated, that it was not surprising at all that rhetoric turned violent. That's how big the issues were. So um, in the 1850s, this tension over the issue of slavery was really beginning to tear apart one of the two major parties. It was the Democratic Party, uh, the party of Jefferson, Jackson, and the party that really dominated the Congress because of the influence of Southern members. By the middle of the 1850s, and the eruption of tension here in our part of the country, Missouri, Kansas Territory, over the struggle on whether Kansas should be admitted to the Union as a state without slavery or a state that permitted human slavery, that boiled up in the House of Representatives. In 1855, the new Congress came to town in the winter and took over 50 ballots before a new speaker was selected. Looking back at that, historians have concluded it wasn't about personalities. It was about sections. And it wasn't so much South versus North as it was slavery versus anti-slavery. The ultimate speaker was selected was a fellow from Massachusetts who was an anti-slavery Democrat. He put together a coalition that secured him the job by just a handful of votes guy named Nathaniel Banks. But this was an indication that the problems in America, the problems that divided Americans, were becoming so serious that even something that used to be just a ritual, the selection of a speaker to start the new Congress, had become a battleground. So the selection of Banks in the middle 1850s probably was sort of a marker of how the temperature was rising in American politics. Everybody kind of knows the basic story after the mid-1850s, the new Republican Party, led by Abraham Lincoln, led by William Seward and Sam and Chase, was beginning to break apart the old Whig Party, the party that had produced Henry Clay and various other national leaders. That disruption in the traditional American party system made itself felt by the end of the 1850s. Um, in the elections of 1858, the new Republican Party earned enough support to really complicate the job of selecting a speaker. 
the House of Representatives, as Spencer pointed out a little earlier, took nearly two and a half months before a weak, unknown, compromised candidate named William Pennington from New Jersey could be selected to be the Speaker of the House of Representatives. At this point, it's probably fair to say that the ability of the House of Representatives to serve as a place for Americans to debate their biggest problems, to formulate solutions to those problems, to work with the President of the United States on the solution to those problems, was disappearing. Congress instead was becoming just a battleground between pro-slavery Southerners and anti-slavery Northerners, a growing force in American politics. Um, as a counterpart, just even though we're talking about Congress, I'll observe that both in 1856 and in 1860, the Democratic Party's own internal tensions over slavery were beginning to almost tear it apart as well. Um, Stephen Douglas, the little giant from Illinois, the guy who debated Abraham Lincoln in 1858 up and down the state of Illinois over the U.S. Senate seat, twice tried to secure the nomination to run as the Democratic candidate for president. Both times, pro-slavery Southerners tested him, found him wanting, and the conventions that selected the speaker took a long, long time to come up with a compromise candidate. By 1860, that tension within the Democratic Party was so serious that the party split and nominated two different candidates, each claiming to be the legitimate Democratic candidate for president. Douglas finally got his nomination, campaigned for president. Another Democrat, Breckinridge, represented Southern pro-slave Democrats. No surprise, a split Democratic Party was unable to earn enough electoral votes. The new Republican Party, led by this obscure backwoods prairie lawyer named Abraham Lincoln, chose the president of the man who would become president of the United States. So even though I said earlier that politics doesn't repeat and history doesn't repeat, but there sure is some rhyming going on, let me suggest a couple of thoughts about the selection by the Republicans of this new speaker, Mike Johnson. Johnson represents a district up in northwest Louisiana. If you've ever traveled through that region, they call Arc La Tex where Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana come together, you'll know that it is one of the most conservative parts of the most conservative section. Johnson represents that kind of conservatism. His positions on a whole range of American issues are so far to the extreme that the Republican Party has now committed itself to be led by a person who rose to the ranks, not because he was a great legislator, but because he was a spokesperson for some of the strongest ideological elements of extremism in the Republican Party. We'll see how that goes the next time we have to fund the federal government in January. My bets are that it'll be a complicated, difficult process. Spencer, that's kind of my introduction to the problem of congressional dysfunction. Happy to take questions. So I've already got one question that came in to me, said that the Heritage Foundation's Project 2025 and the quest for a unitarian or a unitary executive, I wonder if you've got some thoughts on that, Carl? I do. First off, I want to thank Unitarians for hosting this. My late mother was a Unitarian in Portland, Oregon. She was a member of what I believe was the oldest Unitarian congregation in the Pacific Northwest there in downtown Portland, Oregon. She was a proud UU, so it's, a, it's an honor for me to be with a group of Unitarians. 
Uh, yeah, I am familiar with that uh, effort underway at the Heritage Foundation, Spencer. Thanks for the question from the viewer. Bottom line, this is a project that would attempt to replace the nonpartisan expert civil service that we've enjoyed in the United States government since the days of Theodore Roosevelt over 120 years ago with a group of ideological partisans, cohorts of Trumpists committed to the idea that working for Trump as president is their highest mission and really dedicated to turning upside down much of the system of federal protection of health, safety, and life, federal management of parts of the economy. Um, this is a radical blueprint for changing the way the United States government works. There's no other way to say it than that. These folks are telling us what they intend to do, and we should pay attention because many of them are dedicated body and soul to accomplishing this kind of revolutionary change in the work of the government. Okay. I um, wonder if you can, especially interest of mine, if you can talk about the role of the media in the rise of partisanship now and, um, you know, in the 1840s and 50s. Sure. Uh, well, let me first put my historian hat on and say that in some ways, the media landscape that we live in now has some parallels to the media landscape in the 15 years preceding the Civil War. By that, I mean, there was no consensus national press at the time of Douglas and Lincoln and Banks and Pennington. Instead, every party, every political organization had its own newspaper and pamphlet system so that if you wanted to curate your media by only reading from people who agreed with you, that was pretty easy to do. Um, newspapers were cheap. The government mailed them for free so that there was a little bit of a reinforcement of the echo chamber of politics so that if you were a pro-slave Southern Democrat, you could choose to read all of your media from pro-slave Southern Democratic newspapers and other publications. That's a little bit the world we live in now. Um, you and I, who grew up at a time of Walter Cronkite and Harry Reasoner and Eric Severide and some of the great giants of the major media networks, though they're gone now. Instead, what we have is a completely fractured media universe with politicians, in a sense, operating as their own media centers. Um, the sophistication and the reach of the social media presence of some of these leading members of Congress would rival what news-gathering institutions do themselves. They tell their own stories, they present their own version of the facts, they reach out to their followers, and they don't just reach their congressional district in Kansas City area or central Kansas, they're reaching all across the country so that somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Clay Higgins from Louisiana, they're getting contributions from the state of Washington to the state of Florida and every place in between. So it's a little bit of a self-reinforcing media network. There is no common currency of media that we look at now. Now we choose our media, and members of Congress have exploited that. Permit me to play the devil's advocate on, on that comparison, though, because in the 1850s, everybody kind of knew the different partisan rags, right? I mean, and, and, and so if you're watching television, you know you can watch... Fox, or you can watch MSNBC and get get different 
perspectives. But if you're if you're following social media, you may not realize that the click economy is is um, hurting you into into echo chambers. Am I correct about that? I believe that you are. I'm, I'm not a media specialist, but I do think that the search algorithms that the various platform companies have embedded tend to act a little bit like sheepdogs in a pasture. They, they herd the sheep in a certain direction. I'm not saying that we're sheep. I'm simply saying that there's kind of a herding effect going on there. And it, it takes kind of a, a literate media consumer, you know, being aware of your power as a consumer to pick and choose things that give you a balanced diet, a balanced menu of news and facts and opinion. You know, just like in nutrition, if you get a balanced diet, you're going to be a, a better citizen. So I'm uh, also interested. I've heard that postmasters in the South often refuse to uh, distribute secessionist newspapers. To what extent did that happen? When what what extent did that contribute to the rise of the divisions you talked about? There was a tendency for nearly 25 years before the outbreak of the Civil War for Southern. I'll say Southern power brokers, people who ran media, people who organized political parties to try to control and ultimately try to eliminate abolitionist and anti-slavery news from coming into the South. Um, in many cases, uh, a postmaster who was a political appointee could lose his job in the South if he had not scrubbed the mail for material coming in from the North or the Northwest that attacked slavery or any of the legal and economic aspects of slavery. So again, it was reinforcing this media echo chamber, uh, which had the effect of raising the temperature among Southerners. Um, if they couldn't read another view, they tended to just believe that what they were doing was right, and the news reinforced that on a daily or weekly basis. This is a, a little different than what you're talking about now, but uh, with uh, everything that Trump says, uh, which has violence on the surface or the subsurface, how do you think uh, that compares to what uh, Mike Johnson uh, says or believes? Um, is there is there a connection between? Anything that Mike Johnson believes in terms of violence and uh, and, and Trump's uh, uh, rhetoric on violence. Thanks for the question. Um, I I would hesitate to judge any person by a handful of statements that they've made in public life. However, Johnson has been a public figure even before he was elected to political office for close to 20 years now. I don't think Mike Johnson himself wants people to fight with guns and fists, but I do think that people who share Speaker Johnson's beliefs about the way culture and politics work in America foresee that conflict is almost inevitable. Um, if, if you read some of the things that he has said on his radio programs, in his newsletters, um, and the people around him, Many of them believe that America is poised for a conflict between the forces that they see as representing truth and righteousness and what they consider to be more dangerous forces. So, yeah, there is an interplay. It's a reciprocal interplay between Trump's overt appeals to use threats of violence 
and the kind of vision of American politics and culture that folks coming out of Speaker Johnson's world have. I, I think there's a reciprocal back and forth effect there. So we have a question here. What is a great review of the issues that you've um, raised and um, and what do you see as an effect, uh, effective responses? Ooh, uh, well, I'll tell you, I would start with a book that came out I believe it was published in about 2010 or 2012 by two distinguished students of Congress. Um, their names are Norman Ornstein and Thomas Mann. Ornstein is a traditional conservative. Mann is a traditional liberal or progressive. They cooperated to write a book called It's Worse Than You Think. They focused on Congress after the time of Newt Gingrich and concluded that the way Congress worked was beginning to collapse, and that the collapse wasn't a bipartisan problem, it was a one-side partisan problem. In their view, the Republican Party was becoming dedicated to the idea that government itself was the problem, uh, taking Ronald Reagan's statements from the late 70s and early 80s, and basically turning them into an agenda to attack the way government worked. And the way that they were most successful was affecting the way that Congress interacted with the government. So this book by Ornstein and Mann, and uh, Mann and Ornstein have written several later versions of that book, but that is one of the best surveys I've seen by two people who've been studying Congress for 40 years into how we ended up in a situation where a speaker can be ousted and somebody who is coming from the outer reaches of American politics can become, in some ways, the third most powerful person in American politics. So prior to the Civil War, in the 15 years before the Civil War, you said that the, uh, much of the conflict was really about slavery. Are we still dealing with race today? Is that a primary driver? I'd say that yes, it is a it is one of the primary differences between the coalition that is the Republican Party and the coalition that is the Democratic Party. Obviously, I'll say this at the outset. The disagreements over slavery that would result in the United States going to war against itself and the death of probably close to a million people, both soldiers and civilians, it, it's far different than what we're dealing with now. But Spencer, I do believe that survey data shows time and again that those who are most concerned about racial equality, about ethnic dignity, are those who are most likely to believe that Republicans have the best solution to those problems, which has led to the Republican Party becoming more and more of a sort of monochromatic coalition. And the Democratic Party becoming much more of a, what you might call a technicolor coalition. And I think that the strength of Republicanism in very rural places, which tend to be ethnically and racially somewhat monochromatic, has something to do with the fact that that party is successful in articulating the views and feelings of those Americans. Uh, it, it's not simple, but I do think that race and attitudes about race and the, the type of American society that we have and that we want to have are a feature of what's driving both of the parties in the direction that they are going. 
Um, so you worked with Frank Church. Uh, I, a questioner said that you may know that his son, Forrest, became one of the most well-regarded Unitarian ministers. Do you have? Uh, did you have any opportunity to partner with him, or any comments about his career? Yeah, thanks for that great question. Yeah, Forrest Church, who I guess he was approximately a decade older than me, um, became the pastor of a prominent Unitarian congregation in New York City, and I think he's now out west in California. We were not friends at all, but Idaho's a small place. The senator's official family was a pretty small official family, and I did spend some time with Reverend Church, and also with his first wife, who was really active in 1976 on behalf of the senator's campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination. Uh, her name is Amy. Uh, I worked with her on some of the caucus efforts on the East Coast, where I was going to college, and a little bit with her out West, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, Forrest is a... In many ways, if you knew his father, you could see where Forrest got his eloquence and his ability to write and speak with power and his dedication to some of the same principles that drove his dad. Dignity, freedom for the individual, responsibility, sense of taking on big challenges. Yeah, he, he was very much his father's son in that. So talk about the role of the Citizens United Supreme Court decision and other decisions where corporations are people and money is speech, and in my terminology, humans are second-class citizens in the U.S. of A today. Sure, Spencer, I will. I mean, I've spent about 99% of this morning talking about two of the three branches of government, the Congress and the executive branch, the president. Um, some of the same political instincts and impulses that have been driving the Republican Party's efforts in the Congress and the presidency can be seen in the judiciary, the third branch of government. Um, it has been a mission for three decades now for very conservative individuals and very conservative institutions who use the federal courts to try to accomplish legally what they suspected would be much harder to accomplish politically. Um, people like the current Chief Justice, John Roberts, some of the other members of the court, like Samuel Alito or Clarence Thomas and some of the newer justices, these are people who forged their view of law and politics at a time when conservatives were beginning to take the view that government was an enemy and that the job of the conservative was to tear down those parts of the government that they thought interfered with their vision of freedom and liberty. One of those government interventions in the free market, as they saw it, was prohibiting corporations from using money to shape politics. After Citizens United, it's become pretty much an unrestrained arms race involving money and politics. And this, to me, as a historian, is just dismaying because it was Republicans like Theodore Roosevelt and his progressive allies in the first decade of the 20th century who took on the role of big money in American politics and said, you know, it's not right that corporations, business corporations and wealthy individuals should be able to spend unlimited amounts of money to influence elections. Some of the laws that have been um, found to be 
unconstitutional by the Supreme Court literally date back to the days of Theodore Roosevelt. Citizens United was only the most uh, obvious example. Um, whether it's possible to recreate a system of financial regulation to try to keep elections more open and fair, I don't know. I think state by state, there are some opportunities. Some states have experimented with public funding of public elections, as they do in every other small-D democratic country in the world. I don't know at the national level if we're going to be there, given the composition of the U.S. Supreme Court for the next 25 years. Talk about the role of the consolidation and ownership of the media in, and that con the con contribution of that to the polarization that we're experiencing today. Robert McChesney, media scholar McChesney, has recommended donating 15 hundreds of a percent of GDP to local news nonprofits distributed by local elections to to secure a great diversity of voices. There's mileage in that, Spencer. Let me kind of step back into the world of Idaho politics in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, this was the period when a lot of local AM radio stations that used to be one of the kind of two main providers of news in smaller and mid-sized communities began to switch from news gathering and reporting to the transmission of talk radio programs, many of which were generated nationally or out in our part of the country regionally. So that the AM dial after about the middle 1990s in the Western United States was pretty much dominated by talk radio, and most of the talk radio was being generated by nationally funded conservative enterprises. Now, obviously, in places like Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, the Bay Area, California, there would be progressive or more left local radio. But that loss of local radio news uh, and the replacement of it by large funded talk radio programs I think has led to a real uh, kind of impoverishment of the news diet. Um, it's one reason why stations like KKFI are so valuable. Um, even in larger metro areas like Kansas City, um, much of the AM dial, if you're not onto the sports side of things with Chiefs and Jayhawks and Tigers and such, um, it consists of nationally tel uh, developed talk radio programs. Uh, I guess the, the hope is that because it's relatively inexpensive for uh, someone to launch an online news service or an online radio program, that there may be opportunities to find gaps in the system and to recreate something that looks more like a media world that we came up with 50 years ago. Um, one final point I would make, even though, let's say, 1965, with a handful of major television networks, a handful of major newspapers, we still had a whole constellation of local newspapers and local radios providing a variety of different viewpoints about the news. That local constellation is pretty much collapsing into giant, giant uh, what would they call them, red giants, where there's just a handful of news distribution centers around the United States. So we've we've only got a few seconds left, a couple of minutes left. Any final words for the group here, the audience? 
Well, first off, thanks again to KKFI and to All Souls for hosting this conversation. It, it's a huge honor for me as a historically trained person to be part of a conversation that's been going on in Kansas City on Sunday mornings for 80 years. So I really tip my cap to uh, the station and to the church for hosting this conversation. Second point I would make, um, democracy is not a spectator sport. It's a contact game. You've got to get out. you got to, you know, do all the things that good citizens are supposed to do. Um, Kansas City is a really vibrant community right now, politically speaking. Um, 30 years ago, Johnson County, Kansas was the epitome of Kansas conservatism. Today, Johnson County is one of the most complicated political and economic and ethnic uh, laboratories for democracy in this part of the country. So uh, good chance for people who want to be active to become active throughout the Kansas City area. Just a reminder, if you want to share this with others, invite them to search for the forum at, at allsoulskc.org. All or, as I say, next week, Kevin Bernhardt will discuss 40 years of fighting fascism and what the future holds. Berghardt is president and executive director of the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights. Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. The All Souls Forum is a production of the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Kansas City, Missouri. And now stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon, followed by the Happy Hour at 3 p.m. and the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.